0: seats. We've got a lot of denominations to get through today, so please be ready to listen fast, because I'm going to talk fast. Of course, I talk fast anyway. Even though I'm from the South, I still talk fast, I think. So come on in. This is part three. You should be getting some notes for part three. This is week three of our study on denominations, how did we get here? How did we get here? And hopefully we can give some light on that. So come on in as we get started here on part three. In part one, we looked at the church up till about 1500. That would be the Roman Catholic Church. But we said in 1054, it's split between the Eastern Church and the Roman Catholic Church with the Patriarch of Constantinople really in charge of the Eastern Church and the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, in charge of the Western Church. And then last week, in number two, uh, we looked at the Reformation. and that's what I'm talking about here in the introductory matters here. If you've got your notes there, part three of our notes, let's begin here. So I mentioned that last time we, were look, we looked, started looking at the Protestant Reformation, and we began with Martin Luther in 1517. We noted he was a Roman Catholic priest. He wanted to reform the church, but the church was not interested, the Roman Catholic Church was not interested in his reforms, um, he was particularly uh, interested in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He discovered that doctrine, saw it in the Bible, that we are justified, declared righteous, we are saved by faith alone, by the instrument of faith alone, and not by works. But the Roman Catholic Church believes faith plus works in order to be saved, in order order to be right with God, faith plus works. Now, we believe that a Christian will work as the fruit of their salvation, but we don't believe that works are required to be justified, to be regenerated. So they rejected, the Roman Catholic Church rejected Luther's ideas, but his ideas spread throughout Europe, uh, especially in Germany, some parts of Germany, and in Scandinavia. And eventually in some parts of Germany, Germany was not unified at that time. That took almost to the 20th century to be unified. Uh, It was just individual uh, states governed by princes or rulers. So in parts of of Germany, uh, Lutheranism prevailed and in Scandinavia, and it became the state religion. There was no separation of church or state or no thought of separation of church and state. Well, eventually the Lutheran authorities, the civil authorities and the Roman Catholic authorities began to fight among each other. There were wars, religious wars, very costly, deadly. Finally, uh, this ended in 1552 with what's called the Peace of Augsburg, which resulted that uh, Lutheranism was accepted officially in certain parts of Germany, Scandinavia, as the official state religion. So now we have really in the West two sort of approved denominations, the Lutheranism and the Roman Catholic Church. But a third denomination I mentioned there in C, we call the Reformed, uh, also had its origins to a Roman Catholic priest named Ulrich Zingli Zingli in uh, Zurich, Switzerland. Now Switzerland at that time was a series again of independent states. There is a federal constitution now. Switzerland is unified in a sense, but It's a series of individual cantons, each one individually governed at that time. And Zwingli led a reformation in Zurich, Switzerland. And this reformation spread to other Swiss Swiss states like Basel, Bern. But Zwingli died uh, fairly young, and the reformation in Switzerland was uh, taken up and modified and really enhanced by another man, John Calvin in Geneva. John Calvin came to Geneva and he uh, was the leader of the Reformation there and became the leader of the Reform Reformation throughout Switzerland really and throughout uh, Europe. So when we hear the word reformed, we're thinking mainly about John Calvin and his theology, what he taught. Uh, I mentioned Calvin was very prolific. He produced a systematic theology called the Institutes that we still read today. People still quote. It's still thought to be very valuable. His theology is called Calvinism or maybe Reformed theology, Calvinism. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about that later here. Calvin uh, broke with the Episcopal form of church government. Remember we said that In the early centuries of the church an unbiblical idea crept into the church the idea that there is the distinction between the pastor and the bishop remember we said that in the new testament the word pastor elder overseer overseer bishop are all the same person they're different terms but they refer to the same office But they separated that and made the bishop higher and in charge of the church. The bishops control the church in the Episcopal form, not the congregation. These churches do not have congregational government like we have where our church is congregationally governed and we vote on who will be the pastor and our budget and things like that. That doesn't happen in the Roman Catholic Church or in um, the Reformed churches mostly, not in the Lutheran Church too much, in Europe, more in the United States, there's more uh, congregational involvement. So uh, he, Luther, uh, Calvin said, I'm breaking with the Episcopal form, and he uh, had a form of government that where the churches ruled by elders, a plurality of elders chosen by the congregation. Now we have something similar to that, But this is a little different, as we'll see. This is the Presbyterian form of church government. And he laid the foundation for that. It's really developed in Scotland. We'll see that in just a moment here. So if we look at the chart there, we can see, I've just put baptism, Lord's Supper, religious tolerance, church government. Uh, So the Roman Catholic Church believes in baptismal regeneration, that when baptized the infant they're regenerated they have they're in the state of grace and so forth they're saved at that moment luther kept that view of baptismal generation now you might wonder how could he do that because he believed in justification by faith alone if you believe in justification by faith alone how can how can you how can an infant be baptized and be saved how does that happen well here's what the uh missouri senate a very conservative lutheran group here's how they explain it although we do not claim to understand how this happens or how it is possible we believe that when an infant is baptized god creates faith in the heart of the infant it takes a lot of faith to believe that but that's how they get around the justification by faith alone the infant god creates faith in the infant and so they're justified by faith now, of course, they can lose that faith very, you know, as they grow up and so forth. The Reformed view is covenant baptism. That was, that's Calvin's view and other Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches. And what is that? Well, that that says baptism doesn't regenerate the infant, but baptism makes the infant part of the uh, brings the, the make, makes a part of the, the infant a part of the new covenant and makes it part of the church. So when an infant is baptized in a Presbyterian church, the infant is part of the visible church. So it's just like circumcision in the Old Testament. That's the analogy. So circumcision in the Old Testament made a child a part of Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, you're part of, the, part of Israel now. And so the same way the analogy is baptism is like circumcision. And this baptism makes you part of the visible church. You are part of the church now. It doesn't regenerate you, but it makes you part of the church, and hopefully you will grow up and be regenerated. So you've got a church that has got people in it who are not regenerated. That's different from what we believe. We believe in regenerated church membership. You must be regenerated. You must profess to be a Christian. You must profess to be regenerated to be a member of our church, regenerate church membership. On the Lord's Supper, remember the Roman Catholics believe in transubstantiation, the elements are changed into the body and blood of Christ. Lutherans believe that it's not changed, but Christ is there actually. The reformed believe, no, it's it's the spiritual presence of Christ. In these churches in Europe, there was no religious tolerance, it was church state religions, and we've talked about the various forms of government in each of these churches. Now, on that chart there in figure one, the printer kind of messed me up there, but I was uh, looking at two lines, uh, 1517. The top line comes off, and that's Lutheranism. You can see how it goes off. And I was trying to put a little blue stuff in there to emphasize it, but the second line at the bottom, circa 1520, goes off and goes down And then it's just kind of blanked out. That's supposed to be Reformed there. That's the Reformed Church there in 1520. So we've got two, another denomination. Now, the Reformed Church is not officially accepted in Europe, technically, uh, until we get to 1648, but there it is. Now let's talk about the Anabaptists. You can see on that chart in Figure 1, you see 1520 is when the Reform comes off. And then in 1525, uh, you see something called the Anabaptist movement. What is that? Well, the Anabaptist, as I say here, means rebaptize or baptize again. And this movement arose in Zwingli's ministry, Ulrich Zwingli in Z- uh, Zurich. Zwingli, when he first began teaching about this, and he departed from the Roman Catholic Church, he was studying the Bible, he thought, first, he talked about that, only adults should be baptized. He 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 mentioned that, only adults should be baptized, and he sort of taught that. And then he went back to infant baptism. Infant baptism is necessary in these church-state things because the child needs to be a part of the church and the state. And to be part of the church, you've got to be baptized, the church-state go together. So he reverted back to the Roman Catholic practice, covenant baptism that we talked about, And uh, some people, however, picked up Zwingli's idea that only believers should be baptized, Uh, regenerate. You know, you should be regenerated before you're baptized. Should come to faith. Well, uh, his followers uh, adopted that practice. They came to be known as Anabaptists. That was a prejudicial title. Uh, They insisted. They insisted. You know, they didn't like that name because they said we're not rebaptizing. People. We're just baptizing them the first time. And we say the same thing. We have folks come to our church, they've been baptized as infants, and we baptize them. We're not re-baptizing them technically. We say, You've never really been baptized. That was not scriptural baptism. What we're doing now is really scriptural baptism. So they rejected that title, but that title kind of stuck. They preferred to be called brethren and in their churches. And so when you see churches today that are brethren church, with the word brethren in it, you can almost be certain that that is an Anabaptist traditional church. Now, this starts with a man named Conrad Grable. I mentioned there on page two, number two. He's regarded as the founder of the movement. He's one of Zwingli's sort of disciples. Uh, uh, Con- uh, Grable and a guy named Felix Manns were having Bible studies, studying the Bible, trying to study these issues out apart from their church and the authority said that's illegal, you shouldn't do that. They refused to baptize their children, infant baptism. Instead, Grable, as I say, baptized Blau Rock and then he baptized Grable and others. And that was immediately uh, condemned by the Zurich council. Uh, They declared this adult baptism to be a capital offense and actually Felix Mann's was drowned in January the 5th, 1527. So it was not uncommon for Anabaptists to be drowned or put to death for their beliefs. I mentioned here on page three that uh, although these Anabaptists believed in believers baptism, uh, most practiced uh, effusion, which is pouring rather than immersion. So let's talk about this first. There's two elements that we're concerned about in baptism. The subjects of baptism and the mode of baptism. The subjects and the mode. So the subjects are who can be baptized. And the most important truth about baptism is that only believers can be baptized, regenerate, people who have been regenerated, not infants. So when a person rejects infant baptism and comes to believe in uh, in, the, in uh, regenerate baptism prof, those who profess faith um, believers baptism that's a big step and that's the most important step <laughs> now it's also true that the mode's important uh, you know immersion is the correct mode the word baptizo means to immerse but the most important is that believers bapt is the believers part there and they got that right <laughs> But they didn't uh, actually get to immersion. Most of them didn't. Um, They uh, insisted on separation of church and state, which was a good thing. But they were pacifists. They refused to swear oaths. They opposed Calvinism. So they didn't like the doctrines of Calvinism, the sovereignty of God, predestination. They believed the death of Christ removed the guilt of original sin for all people and genuine believers could fall from grace and lose their salvation and be eternally condemned. Now their, their theology is very similar to what later is called Arminianism. Arminianism, quite similar. That goes back to a man by the name of Jacob Arminius. Now I'm going to talk about Arminianism in just a moment, but it's these, that's, that's the kind of teaching. You can lose your salvation. Some of these things are called Arminian, and we'll, I'll explain that in just a moment. Well, these Anabaptists fled throughout uh, Switzerland, southern Germany, and so forth. Uh, It's the beginning of what's called the Free Church Movement because uh, it's separation of church and state. We're part of the Free Church Movement here at our church, in that sense. Uh, Some of this stuff got out of hand. In 1534, a group of fanatical Anabaptists in Munster attempted to set up a theocracy by force. They adopted polygamy. They forced distribution of wealth. They slaughtered their opponents. They did some pretty bad things, unfortunately, and episodes like this caused Anabaptists to be persecuted throughout Europe. Uh, Luther persecuted them, Lutherans did, and the Catholics did, uh, because some of these radical things. The Anabaptist movement, as I say here, was rescued by a man by the name of Menno Simons. Menno Simons. He was a former Catholic priest who got converted to the Anabaptist faith, and he rehabilitated the movement. He and his followers are called Mennonites, you've probably heard of the Mennonites, and he established congregations in the Netherlands and northern Germany and so forth. Um, This is an evangelical Anabaptism that he brought forth. So Mennonite churches and Amish churches trace their lineage back to Menno simons There was a break-off from the Mennonite churches by a man by the name of Jacob Ammon, 1693. He split off with a more more stricter sect, and that's called the Amish. So the Amish and the Mennonites are related. They both go back to Menno-Simons, but the the Amish are a much more stricter uh, sect of uh, Anabaptists. Uh, I say here, large groups of Mennonites and Amish immigrated to Pennsylvania in the 17th, 18th centuries, and they moved west to Ohio and Indiana and places like that. Now, the question is what, what's the relationship between Baptist and Anabaptist? Well, there's no direct linkage between them and earlier Baptist. I personally, I'm no historian, but most Baptist historians do not believe that we should trace Baptists directly to Anabaptists. They shared some beliefs, but as we'll see, Baptists have a different uh, origin. Uh, sometimes they're called cousins, they're our spiritual cousins is the term that's used. All right, so let's talk about the Anglican Church. We have the uh, Lutheran Church, we have Reformed group, reformed churches, Now the Anglican. The Anglican is the name for the Reformation in England. It was established politically, you know, under the monarchy. monarchy. Its beliefs are reflected in the the doctrinal statement of the Anglican Church today, called the 39 Articles. And I say it's a masterpiece of doctrinal ambiguity. And I'll explain that in a moment, why that's so. Well, let me say here that in the Church of England, you have people who are kind of high church. They're almost like Roman Catholics. And then you have people who are very evangelical. Uh, A man like J.I. Packer, who died in 2020, you may know him. A very fine, excellent writer. We have some of his books in our ministry center. J.I. Packer was an Anglican, but he was an evangelical Anglican. But there are some that are (laughs) much different than he. And they interpret these 39 articles different ways. They're kind of ambiguous, as we'll see. Well, the direct cause of this reformation was the fact that King Henry VIII, remember the six wives of Henry VIII, Uh, been many dramas about that. Um, He wanted to divorce his wife, Catherine, because she had not produced a male heir. She'd only produced a daughter named Mary, and he was concerned that a woman wouldn't be able to hold England together. People wouldn't rally to her and she wouldn't be able to hold the kingdom together. So he needed a male heir. So he wanted to divorce his wife. The Pope would not allow it for various reasons. But there was a man named Thomas Cranmer who was a lecturer at a Cambridge, and he came up with an idea that, and he said, and put it forward to Henry that, you know, you're mar- you married your brother, and so there's a sense in which you married your brother's wife. When he married Catherine, his brother had died, his, and uh, he had married his mother's wife, that brother's wife. That, that's really an incestuous marriage, and so really we could annul that. We could, we could, do, you could divorce her. So he got appointed. Henry appointed him Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Church in England. He provided that divorce, so uh, Henry divorced uh, his uh, wife Catherine, and he quickly married Anne Boleyn. I'm sorry, I've misspelled her. Name there, it's not B-O-E-L-Y-N, it's B-O-L-E-Y-N, Anne Boleyn. She was already pregnant with his second child, Elizabeth. Well, in 1534, he broke with the Roman Catholic Church, formed the Church of England, or the Anglican Church, with the king as the temporal head, and the Archbishop of Canterbury as the spiritual head of the church. That's still the structure today. King Charles is actually the supreme governor of the uh, Anglican Church, Archbishop of Canterbury is the spiritual head of the church. Now, the church in Henry's time was really mostly like a Roman Catholic church. Henry was no real Protestant, so he didn't make a lot of changes, he just became the head of the church, and they, they, they got rid of the, some of the Roman Catholic practices, but not a lot. Well, he eventually, uh, Henry had Anne Boleyn uh, executed, and he married his third wife, Jane Seymour. She produced a son, Edward. And after Edward, Henry's death, Edward came to the throne as a young child, and he was tootled, he was uh, taught by Archbishop Cranberry. And the church moved in a decidedly Protestant and Calvinistic direction. Cranmer was a, was a strong Calvinistic kind of guy. And so the church moved very strongly in that direction. <clears throat> and under his direction, they produced the first doctrinal statement for the Church of England, the 42 articles. Now, eventually that becomes 39, but 42, and it's a very Calvinistic, Protestant doctrinal statement. Um, Now, after uh, Edward's short reign, his sister Mary, Henry's first daughter, came to the throne, and she was a Roman Catholic. She brought England back into the Roman Catholic fold. England became a Roman Catholic country again with the pope as head of the church and so forth, She executed about 300 Protestants, including Cranmer. She's known as Bloody Mary. Heard of that title before. Well, after her death, then Elizabeth comes to the throne. And she reestablishes the Church of England with herself as the Supreme Governor of the Church. And they create the 39 Articles. And as I say, that's kind of a more compromised document, still Calvinistic, uh, commonly understood as being moderately Calvinistic. And ambiguous regarding baptism or regeneration. I mean, if I, I read these Anglicans, and some of them say it does teach baptism or regeneration, and some say it does not teach baptism or regeneration, you can't. They have different views. So it was established by law as the state church. It still is technically the state church. There is some funding by the government for the church, very little, oh. <clears throat> Now, so this becomes the state church. It took a long time. Catholics were persecuted until uh, 1846. Uh, They were allowed to practice their religion until 1846, and Jews in 1858. Uh, From the time of Elizabeth, there were still people in the church who wanted to reform the church. They didn't think it was Protestant enough. It wasn't like Calvin's Geneva. They're called Puritans. Uh, they wanted to bring the church more in line with, with, with Calvin's idea and we'll study them a little later so now I put the Lutheran, the Reformed the Anglican up there the Anglican, I got baptismal generation question mark because you know, it's hard to say spiritual presence for the Lord's Supper, that's probably what they believe, but they have the Episcopal form of church of government just like the Lutherans do and still so today The Anglican Church is an Episcopal form of church government where the bishops rule the church. Well, Let's talk about the Presbyterian or the Scottish Reformation in Scotland. And this uh, Reformation came about through John Knox. John Knox was born in Scotland, became a Catholic priest, but was converted to Protestantism in 1545. He preached in England... And during the reign of Edward VI, but when Mary came to the throne, he had to leave England because she was putting Protestants to death. He went to Geneva to study with John Calvin. And there's this famous quote that Knox always is quoted about. He says, he calls Geneva the most perfect school of Christ that ever was in the earth since the days of the apostles. And he wanted to bring that back to Scotland, and he did bring that back to Scotland. In 1559, he returned. He worked with the Scottish Parliament, and uh, by 1560, they had kind of completed the proceeded to the Reformation. The Pope was gone as the head of the church. The mass illegal, statutes removed, and so forth. The Scottish Confession of Faith was written by Knox and five others. And in 1567, the Reformed Church of Scotland was created with a Presbyterian style of church government like like, uh, uh, John Calvin proposed. Um, And this was legally recognized by Parliament. The Church of Scotland is still in existence today. Now, it's a very liberal church today, extremely liberal, and I'll talk about what all that means next time. So I mentioned here at the bottom of page four that this is a Presbyterian form of church government in Scotland. And in the Presbyterian form, as Calvin said, we have the government, the church is ruled by elders. Now you see on page five, Uh, that chart there i'll try to explain that a little bit this is the presbyterian form of church government that you're going to find in presbyterian churches Uh, sometimes you'll find it slightly in some independent churches and so forth but we think of it with presbyterian churches so at the very bottom you see the congregation there you see a number of congregations and you see that dotted line going up to the box that says e e e e the elders So the church is governed by these elders. Now these elders, some of them are picked by the congregation exclusively. They're called ruling elders. So in the Presbyterian church, you have ruling elders and teaching elders. And the congregation picks generally these ruling elders. They're generally men in the church who uh, are spiritual men, but they they don't necessarily have any... Edu- uh, seminary education they're not ordained men but then for the pastors of the church they they come from the presbytery so if you see that presbytery above that that's over several churches so there is a presbytery that's made up of ordained men people have gone to seminary they've been ordained into the presbyterian church they accept the confession of faith of that presbyterian church and the church gets its pastor from one of those from the presbytery. They can't just choose anybody. They got to choose somebody from the presbytery, somebody who's qualified, ordained, accepted by the presbytery. And he, along with the ruling elders, make up the elders of the church, the ruling elders and the teaching elders, maybe one or multiple teaching elders. But above the presbytery, there's a general assembly. So there's government above that, that that determines the constitution our rules so that the church is not an autonomous church now it has more autonomy than a, than, a, than a, an episcopal church does but it's not like our church it's not it's not like baptist churches that are autonomous there is a hierarchy above uh, the local church level here all right let's look at uh, that chart on number three and again I, that, i'm sorry the printer kind of got me there again but i've got the the anglican there in blue that we talked about i got the anabaptist in blue at the bottom but that 1560 line that comes off this blue it should be presbyterian there so we've talked about the the anglican now the anabaptist and the presbyterian all right this now we're looking at page six roman numeral three post-reformation growing pains european religious wars there's uh We said earlier there were conflicts between the Lutherans and Catholics. That ended in the Peace of Augsburg in 1552. Uh, But uh, Protestantism spread throughout Europe, including France, Netherlands, the Huguenots. Uh, You can look at figure four there. You can see that orange uh, on page six. Uh, You see it's up there in Scotland, that orange, the, the Presbyterian, the Reformed. It's throughout Germany, some, particularly in France. There were a lot of Protestants in France called the Huguenots. I'm not going to talk about them much. Unfortunately, they were almost completely wiped out, like genocide. The, the rulers of France ultimately just murdered and killed. Many of them had to leave. Many of them just left for other countries, came to America, came to other countries. But they just sort of wiped out Protestantism. There were some there in France, but wiped out. Well, this fighting number two here finally ended in 1648 with the Peace of Westphalia. And now Roman Catholics were you know, approved, Lutherans were approved, Reforms approved. Now England, of course, has its own Anglican Church. But the Treaty of Westphalia sort of marked the end of the religious wars. You don't really have that kind of thing too much going on after 1648. And you see there in figure five, on page seven, the religious settlement there. If you look at the top, you see the blue, that's Germany. Some of Germany, Scandinavia, that's the Lutheran. The orange, like in Scotland and Switzerland, the Netherlands, you, that's really the Reformed. The kind of purple, that's the Roman Catholic. That green at the bottom is the Muslim, because uh, Islam had conquered North Africa and so forth. Let's talk a little bit about Arminianism here. I say here, B, Arminianism is a theological viewpoint often contrasted with Calvinism. It comes from a man named Jacob Arminius. He was a Dutch pastor and theologian at the University of Leiden. Uh, The university was founded to promote the theology of John Calvin, Calvinism. But Jacob Arminius disagreed completely with that theology, even though he taught at Leiden, and he rejected the doctrines of Calvinism, especially predestination. He won a lot of followers. After his death, they were called the Remonstrants, there in number two, and they, uh, uh, they issued a statement, I believe, called the Remonstrants. They're called the Remonstrants, T-S, there. Uh, their differences in Calvinism were numerous, uh, and their Their beliefs, Arminianism, we call Arminianism, is held by numerous denominations. So if we look at denominations around us today, some are Calvinistic, mildly Calvinistic, strongly Calvinistic. Some are mildly Arminian, some are strongly Arminian. They kind of divide along those groups. So what is uh, Arminian theology? Uh, Page 8 here. Um, I mentioned three points here that differentiates Arminian theology from Calvinistic theology. One is total depravity. So total depravity, um, what does that mean? It means that unsaved people are entirely sinful, spiritually dead, unable to exercise saving faith. Remember Ephesians 1 says, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So you're spiritually dead. That's what total depravity means. Well, if you're spiritually dead, how are you going to be saved? You need some grace. And so in the Arminian theology, everybody gets this grace. Uh, It's called provenient grace, grace that comes before. So I say here in those notes, I say uh, total depravity, the the Arminians uh, don't, I mean they don't fully believe in total depravity they say they do but it's a hypothetical thing because they believe when anybody is born into the world they immediately receive prevenient grace so they're not really totally depraved anymore it's kind of a i see it as a kind of a theoretical thing but they say there's this prevenient grace and so you're not really totally dead even though that's what paul says there in ephesians 2 1 and he says the person without the spirit cannot accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14, but they say that's not exactly true because you get this prevenient grace. Uh, now, there's no I don't think there's any scriptural support for pervenient grace. I've written a lot about this. If you want a technical article, just see me and I'll send it to you. So, uh, Armenian uh, churches uh, do not hold to total depravity as we would. They would see that... Uh, People are, are not really totally dead. They can, they, they can, they can uh, accept Christ. They have grace to do that, uh, to, to take that first step. Um, we believe total depravity. You see that MPL there. MPL stands for Master Plan for Life. If you've taken that course, you should take it. It's offered next fall. Uh, you should take that course. You must take that course. Can I say that? You must take that course? Okay. You should take that course. <laughs> but what does that say? It says humans are completely unable to lift themselves out of their fallen condition. Just a dead person lying in a tomb is unable to contribute anything to his resurrection. So people who are dead and sin are utterly unable to have saving faith apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we need special grace to overcome our depravity. They also believe in what's called conditional election. That is... God's choosing, I say, is based on his foreknowledge of their own choice to believe the gospel by their own initiative. In other words, God chooses individuals to be saved only in the sense that he consents to the choice he knows they will make when they hear the gospel. God can only choose or elect those who desire to choose him, and God must choose individuals who choose him. Thus, it's not, it's, it is not—it is only the human individual who does any choosing, not God. Now, remember... The Bible talks about God choosing or God electing. Two weeks ago, Pastor Ken preached a sermon from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and there it says in verse 4, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Okay, there it is. God's doing some choosing. (laughs) But in Arminian theology, God doesn't really do any choosing. We choose him, and then he says, okay, I'll take you. And if we don't take him he doesn't take us. But we believe in unconditional election. The master plan for life says it's been shown that since by nature we are all spiritually dead, God must give spiritual life if we're to be saved. God could have chosen to do one of three things with spiritually dead sinners. Save none, save all, save some. The Bible is clear that God gives life to some, but not all sinners. How did God choose those to whom he would give life? On what basis? The Bible teaches that God chose to give us life on the basis of his own purpose and pleasure. God sovereignly chose, elected those to whom he would give life. This further demonstrates that our salvation is all of God's grace, since apart from his gracious choice, none would be saved. Finally, they believe in conditional perseverance. Perseverance simply means that a true believer will persevere in their faith. They will continue in faith. They won't lose their salvation. Conditional and conditional perseverance, you can lose your salvation. So churches that have Arminian theology believe you can lose it, like many holiness, many Pentecostal, free will Baptist. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. I'll just shorten that and say we believe in eternal security. We believe that uh, if you're born again, you cannot lose your salvation. Uh, Arminian theology says, yes, you can. Let's talk about... Uh, Page 9 here, the Puritans and the Baptists in England, quickly here. Well, I want to talk about this because this is where we get the Baptist uh, coming to us. Uh, Puritanism was a movement that I said that rose during the reign of Elizabeth, uh, who, people who wanted to purify the Church of England. These were people affected by Geneva and Calvin and so forth. They agreed in opposing the Episcopal form of church government. They said, that's wrong. These are bishops ruling the church. They disagreed about exactly what form you should have. Should you have Presbyterian form, maybe Congregational form? So there's three types of Puritans. There's Presbyterians A, and then there's Congregationals, and those are usually divided into Separatists and Independents. Let's talk about the Presbyterians. The Presbyterian Puritans were the dominant group in England. And they rose to prominence. They rose to power. They controlled Parliament in 1640. They eventually executed the king. Charles I, they put him to death. They established a Presbyterian form of church government. This is Oliver Cromwell. You remember when he uh, he conquered England, all of England and Ireland and so forth? Uh, These Puritans uh, set up a a Puritan form of church government, Presbyterian. They produced something called the Westminster Confession of Faith in 1646, which is a statement of, you know, reformed Presbyterian beliefs. So if you're in a Presbyterian church, most likely their statement of faith is the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's kind of universal among all Presbyterians and some reformed, but mostly Presbyterians. Uh, but eventually they fell out of power. They restored the monarchy. 1660, Charles II came back, reestablished the Anglican Church like it is today with an Episcopal form of church government. That led many of these Puritans to flee to America. Most of these fled to the middle colonies that would be New York and Pennsylvania, Maryland, and so forth, planted Presbyterian churches. There were other other Puritans, they're called separatists. They favored autonomous, congregational-governed churches, but they wanted to separate from the Church of England. So they wanted separate churches, separate from the Church of England, that were autonomous local churches with congregational church government. Uh, They were persecuted. I mentioned number two here. Because of this persecution, one group... Uh, led by Pastor John Smith, went to Amsterdam. There was 1608. There was religious tolerance there. He came under the influence of Mennonite teaching, and so he became convinced of, you know, baptism, believers' baptism. Remember the Mennonites, the Anabaptists held to believers' baptism, and he he, re, he came to he, he rejected infant baptism because all these Puritans believed in infant baptism the presbyterians and the, the initially these people did the congregational separatists did and he rejected infant baptism came to accept believers baptism and i say in 1609 he baptized himself by pouring and then baptized others in his group thus forming the first identif- identifiable organized baptist church in history now he didn't he, he didn't uh, immerse himself his baptism was not by immersion but Baptist theologians identify this as a Baptist church because he took the most important step. He rejected infant baptism and accepted believer's baptism. Now eventually we'll see Baptists come to accept um, um, baptism by immersion. Now he was Arminian in his theology. He picked that up from the Mennonites. They were Anabaptists, and so he has Arminian theology. And ultimately he left his church to join the, the, the Mennonites, but a part of this group, led by Thomas Helwes, returned to London in 1612 and established what Baptist historians say, the first Baptist church on English soil. And this church gave birth to what's called the General Baptist. So there's General Baptist and particular Baptist in history. The General Baptists are the Arminian theology. Today they're the Free Will Baptist. So if you see a Free Will Baptist church, That's where these people come from ultimately, and they accept this Arminian theology. You can lose your most of all, we think about well, you can lose your salvation. They believe that. Um, Now, number three here, a second group of separatists led by Pastor John Robinson, including William Brewster and William Bradford. They departed for Holland. They settled in Leiden in 1609. Some of them, the pilgrims, under the leadership of Brewster and Bradford, settled at Plymouth, Massachusetts. And they became the pioneers of congregationalism in America. So they established congregational churches. Infant baptism still. These are not Baptists. <laughs> now we have the congregational independence. And from them we get what's called the particular Baptists. Now, you might look at that chart there on figure 6 on page 10 because that kind of explains the left side, the general Baptist, uh, John Smith and then John Helwes. And then I've got on the right side, the particular Baptist. Now these congregational independents were also, con- they also believed in congregational church government, but they initially they tried to, to avoid separation from the Church of England. Under the leadership of a man named Henry Jacob, they established the first congregational church in London in 1616. So they established what's called a congregational church in 1616. That's considered the first, that still believe in infant baptism. Remember, I said these congregational churches come to Massachusetts. We still have congregational churches today. This is considered the first congregational churches. So modern congregational stem from this beginning. Eventually, uh, after the pilgrims came to Plymouth in 1620, in the 1630s, more came to Massachusetts, established the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and just 20,000 came during this period. So a large group of Puritans established themselves in Massachusetts, congregational church government, infant baptism. In 1638, number two, I mentioned that a group split from Jacob's church under the direction of John Spilsbury. Um, They came to the position that believers' baptism was scriptural. They rejected infant baptism. And by 1641, they had become convinced that only immersion was the proper mode of baptism. So they're known as particular Baptists. They're theologically Calvinistic. Seven churches joined together in 1644 to produce the London Baptist Confession. This is the first Baptist Confession to announce that uh, immersion is the proper mode of baptism. Now eventually this mode of baptism by immersion spreads to all Baptist churches, to those general Baptists. Everybody sees that about this. They say, okay, yeah. That's what the Bible teaches. It's immersion. They first got a hold of believers' baptism. They got a hold of that's the most. They got a hold of that, and then it took them a while to see. Okay, uh, the Bible also teaches immersion. They got a hold of that truth. So they came out with the London Baptist Confession. But in 1689, they 100 English and Welsh churches produced the second London Baptist Confession, which is a modification of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So here's what happened. So these Baptists produced the London Baptist Confession. It's a Calvinistic confession of faith. But the Westminster Confession of Faith came out in 1646, and it's a tremendous document, it's a, <laughs> theologically. And the Baptists saw that in 1689. They said, okay, we're going we're gonna to take that uh, Westminster Confession of Faith and modify it to reflect Baptist views about baptism and church government, and they did. So you'll hear, if you study, you'll hear a lot about the Second London Baptist Confession. And you can find Baptist churches around that say our confession of faith is the London Baptist Confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. These particular Baptists were the group that really brought the Baptist faith to America and really spread it. And uh, most Baptist churches in America, except for like Free Will Baptists, are really Uh, subject or really come from that particular Baptist well I wanted to talk about Methodism but I see I didn't talk fast enough so (laughs) I'll stop there and we'll see you next time Lord willing thank you